0: Collected works of Rudolf Steiner, volume 211, entitled The Sun Mystery and the Mystery of Death and Resurrection, Exoteric and Esoteric Christianity. Lecture 7 is entitled Exoteric and Esoteric Christianity, given in Dornach on April 2, 1922. Human evolution is recorded in religious documents and philosophical texts, that speak to all of humanity down through the ages, and we must certainly acknowledge the exoteric impact of such documents. Nonetheless, I must emphasize repeatedly that they need to be complemented by esoteric sources of information. Wherever people have talked in any deeper sense about how they view and understand the world, they have always distinguished between exoteric teachings, which convey outer knowledge, and esoteric teachings, which are accessible only to those who have undergone appropriate preparation in heart and mind. We must make the same distinction with regard to Christianity itself, and especially to its spiritual center, the mystery of Golgotha. The Gospels present the exoteric view of Christianity for all the world to see. Alongside them, however, esoteric Christianity has always existed for those who have appropriately prepared themselves in their souls to receive it. The most important element of esoteric Christianity is its insight into the risen Christ and his interaction with the disciples who were able to understand the resurrection. As you know, this interaction is described only briefly in the Gospels. Unless we advance to the level of esoteric knowledge, these brief accounts merely hint at the fact that a new and unique element was incorporated into earth's evolution through the resurrection. Paul's affirmation of the Christ is an important complement to these hints, because Paul clearly states that his belief in the Christ dates from the moment the Christ appeared to him outside Damascus. His belief is based on direct perception that the Christ has risen from the dead and and is still alive and active in earthly evolution. In his experience at Damascus, Paul perceived the living Christ. It is important for us to consider the significance of Paul's affirmation of the Christ. (laughs) Why was Paul unconvinced of the, the legitimacy of the Christ being until his experience at Damascus? Paul had been initiated into Hebrew esoteric teachings in certain respects, and we must understand that it meant to a person from this tradition that the Christ Jesus had been condemned to an ignominious death on the cross. To Paul it was initially inconceivable that ancient prophecies could refer to someone crucified by his contemporaries, in Paul's mind, before his experience at Damascus, the crucifixion was fully valid proof that Jesus of Nazareth could not have been the Messiah. Paul became convinced of the truth of the mystery of Golgotha only when Jesus of Nazareth, or rather the being incarnated in him, appeared outside Damascus. Hence, Paul's affirmation of the Christ was extremely significant. The accounts passed down in the first few centuries after Christ are no longer extant except perhaps as exoteric historical notes in the hands of a few esoteric societies that do not understand them. If we want to know more about the Christ after the mystery of Golgotha, we must turn to anthroposophical spiritual science. We must rediscover what the risen Christ said to disciples not mentioned in the Gospels. According to tradition, the disciples who encountered the Christ on the road to Emmaus as well as those enumerated elsewhere in the Gospels, were very simple people, who would not have achieved esoteric levels of knowledge. Consequently, our question is, what did the Christ say after his resurrection to the disciples who were truly initiated? <clears throat> to understand this, we must begin by considering the sole make-up of the people of ancient times and how it was affected by the event of Golgotha. For modern people, it is extremely difficult to understand that the earliest human beings on earth did not experience knowledge as we do today. Through their atavistic, clairvoyant capabilities, these early people were able to receive the wisdom of the gods. This means that they were taught by divine beings who descended to earth in spiritual form, of course, from the kingdoms of the higher hierarchies. These divine beings conveyed knowledge to human beings, excuse me, human souls, on a spiritual level. Being taught by divine beings was once a common occurrence in human evolution. The people of ancient times, or at least those initiated into the mysteries, were transported into a state of rapt absorption. For the most part, their souls were outside their bodies. In this state, They were not dependent on outer sense impressions or outer conversation. Instead, they were spiritually receptive to communications from the gods. They did not receive these communications through what we would now call dreams, but rather through living spiritual interaction with divine beings. This is how the people of ancient times experienced wisdom. This wisdom included knowledge of what human souls had experienced In the divine spiritual world before their descent into earthly bodies. For people in the above mentioned state of consciousness, becoming aware of pre birth experiences was like remembering. When the gods conveyed these experiences to them, people felt reminded of what they had experienced in the world of spirit and soul before birth or before conception. An echo of such experiences still resonates in Plato's work. Looking back at ancient times, we see divine spiritual wisdom that was literally conveyed by the gods. This wisdom was unique in that it did not include any knowledge of death, strange as it may sound to modern ears. Like little children, the earth's earliest inhabitants were unaware of death. Regardless of whether they received knowledge directly from the gods or indirectly, from their contemporaries who were taught by the gods, they knew that their souls had once descended from divine spiritual worlds to enter a body and would leave the body again. They saw life as extending into the world of soul and spirit, and they experienced birth and death as transformations, not beginnings or ends. In other words, the first people on earth saw earthly life as one segment in the ongoing development of the human soul. They did not see birth and death as the beginning and the end. Instead, they saw the uninterrupted flow of the life of the spirit and soul, though, of course, they also saw people die. (coughs) Please do not interpret what I say next to mean that I am comparing these earliest humans with animals, although outwardly animal-like in appearance Their bodies housed human souls and spirits, as I have said here before. Nonetheless, they understood as little of death as the animals of today do when they see other dead animals. These earliest people understood only the uninterrupted flow of spirit and soul. For them death was part of Maya, the great illusion, and it made no particular impression on them. All they knew was life. Despite seeing death, they did not know death. They saw human life only from the inner perspective of the activity of the human spirit and soul, which do not die. When they looked back toward their birth, they also saw beyond it to life in the spirit before birth. And when they looked toward death, they again saw the life of spirit and soul extending beyond death. Birth and death had no meaning in their lives. Later humankind gradually emerged from this early state of consciousness. If we trace the development of humanity from the earliest times to the mystery of Golgotha, we realize that people were becoming increasingly aware of death and its impact. Their souls became involved in death, and they began to wonder what happened to the souls of people who died. In the earliest times, people did not see death as an ending. At most, they wondered about what sort of transformation it entailed. They thought that perhaps the breath leaving the body carried the soul into immortality, or they developed different ideas about how life flows on into the world of spirit and soul. They thought about the ongoing flow of life, but they did not think about death as an end to life. As the mystery of Golgotha approached, People were beginning to sense for the first time that death had meaning, and that earthly life had a beginning and an end. Of course, they did not formulate this question in philosophical or scientific terms, but the feeling weighed on their minds nonetheless. It was important for people to begin experiencing this feeling in earthly life, because the dawning of reason or the intellect depended on it. As I have often explained, the intellect is dependent on knowing that we die. (laughs) Consequently, human beings had to become aware of death and involved in their own deaths. In ancient times when people were unaware of death, they were totally unintellectual. They did not think up ideas. They received them directly from the spiritual world. Human intellect as such did not exist. It gained a foothold in human minds only later. In soul-spiritual terms, the intellect can gain ground only when people die, when they constantly carry death forces within them. Or to put it in physical terms, we might say that death can occur only when salt, that is solidified or dead mineral substance, is deposited not only in the rest of the body but also in the brain. The brain always has a tendency to develop salt deposits, as if bone formation were a constant unrealized potential in the brain. In other words, the brain always includes a dying-off tendency. At a certain point, death had to be experienced as a reality in human life. People had to become outwardly familiar with death. If human beings had remained as unaware of death as they had been in ancient times, they would never have been able to develop their intellect, because intellect is possible only in a world ruled by death. I have just described the human perspective on this matter. It looks rather different from the perspective of the higher hierarchies, whose intrinsic forces shaped Saturn, Sun, Moon, and finally the Earth. If these hierarchies had discussed the matter among themselves before the mystery of Golgotha, they would have said something like this. We can shape the Earth out of Saturn's Sun and Moon. But if the Earth contains nothing more than what we incorporated into these earlier evolutionary stages, human beings capable of experiencing death and developing their intellect will never evolve on Earth. We, higher hierarchies, are capable of transforming the Moon into an earth where people know nothing of death and cannot develop their intellect. But we cannot make the earth supply forces that foster human intellectual development. For this we will be forced to rely on Ahriman, a being who is very different from us and whose evolutionary path is very different from ours. We must get involved with Ahriman. If we tolerate his presence in the earth's evolution, and allow him to participate in it, he will provide the elements of death and intellect for us to incorporate into the human constitution. Araman knows death because he is bound up with the earth, his path has involved him in earthly evolution, and because he is knowledgeable and wise with regard to death, he is also the lord of the intellect. The gods were forced to come to terms with Araman, if I may put it like that. They had to say to themselves, evolution cannot continue without Araman. he will have to play a role in evolution, but if he does, he will become the lord of death and thus also the lord of the intellect, and the earth will slip through our fingers. Araman is interested only in intellectualizing the whole earth, and he will claim the earth for himself. Thus the gods were confronted with the dilemma of whether to relinquish the earth to Araman in a certain respect. There was only one possible solution. The gods themselves had to become familiar with an element that was non-existent in the divine worlds, not controlled by Araman. Their representative, the Christ, had to experience death on earth, death caused not by divine wisdom, but by the human error that would gain ground on earth under Araman's sole dominion. A god had to undergo death and overcome it. For the gods, therefore, the significance of the mystery of Golgotha was that it enriched their wisdom with the knowledge of death. If no god ever experienced death, the earth would have become completely intellectualized and incapable of evolving in ways determined beforehand by the gods. In ancient times, human beings did not know death, but they gradually became familiar with it and began to sense that death, or the intellect, meant a completely new direction in human evolution. The Christ taught his initiated disciples that he came from a world where death was unknown. He learned about death on earth and overcame it. If we understand this Christic connection between the earthly world and the divine world, we will also learn how to make our way back from intellectuality to spirituality. This is an approximate expression of the contents of the esoteric teachings that Christ imparted to His initiated disciples. He taught them to see death from the perspective of the divine world. To understand the depth of this esoteric teaching, we must realize that the gods have defeated Ahriman by making his forces useful to the earth and have blunted his power by learning about death through the being of the Christ. While it is true that the gods have included Araman in earthly evolution, they are simply using him and will not allow him to fully implement his rulership. You know from my book titled, An Outline of Esoteric Science, that Araman has been working in the human unconscious and subconscious since Atlantean times. Ever since then he has been waiting for the moment in world history when he will also be able to work. In human consciousness, to apply human expressions to divine intentions, we might say that Araman has been longing for the moment when he will also be able to infiltrate human consciousness with his power. Araman was in for a surprise, however, when he realized that the gods had decided to send the Christ, a divine being, to earth to experience death. This decision while it made Ahriman's intervention possible, also blunted the force of his rulership. Since that time Ahriman takes every opportunity to make human beings rely exclusively on their intellect. He has not yet abandoned all hope of succeeding in this effort. What would it mean if Ahriman were to realize his intentions? What if Araman succeeded in convincing human beings that the only possible life is life in a physical body? What would happen if we all believed that it is impossible for us to leave our bodies and exist as beings of spirit and soul? If this conviction becomes universal, the human will be completely imbued with the idea of death, and it will be easy for Ahriman to succeed in his plans. Araman's heart was full of joy from the 1840s through the end of the 19th century, because as materialism increasingly prevailed... He, again, had hopes of being able to exert his dominion over all of the earth. Of course, it is somewhat incongruous to speak of Aramon having a heart. Please take this statement metaphorically. Again, I am applying human expressions to a subject that would actually require inventing new terms. During the late 1800s, even theology became materialistic. Last week I noted that theology has become unchristian, And I mentioned a book by the Basel theologian Overbeck, who attempted to prove that modern theology is no longer Christian at all. Such things gave Ahriman grounds for hope. By now, opposition to Ahriman exists only in teachings that flow through anthroposophy. If anthroposophy makes it possible for people to acknowledge the existence of the human spirit and soul, independent of the body. Ahriman will be forced to abandon his hopes. The Gospels provide an inkling of the Christ's struggle against Ahriman in the story of the temptation in the wilderness. In our times this struggle again becomes possible, but we will understand the issue completely only if we become fully aware that Lucifer played a greater role in humankind's evolution in the past, whereas Ahriman has gained influence over human consciousness only since the mystery of Golgotha. In earlier times, his effect on human beings did not extend to consciousness. If we look into human hearts and minds, we must conclude that the most important event in our evolution on earth is learning to overcome death within ourselves by uniting with the inherent power of the Christ impulse. From the perspective of the spiritual world outside us, This means that the hierarchies, active in the evolution of Saturn, Sun, Moon, Earth and so on, have involved Ahriman in earthly evolution but have limited his dominion by forcing it to serve their purposes. Without Ahriman, the gods would have been unable to bring intellectuality to humankind. And if they had not broken Ahriman's dominion through the Christ event, Ahriman would have made the entire earth inwardly intellectual and outwardly material. We must see the mystery of Golgotha as more than just an inner mystical event. It is also an outer event, although not in the sense of superficial, materialistic, historical research. The significance of this outer event is that the forces of Araman have been incorporated into earthly evolution, but have also been overcome. A struggle between gods is played out in the mystery of Golgotha. After the resurrection that Christ imparted knowledge of this struggle to His initiated disciples through esoteric teachings. In earlier stages of earthly evolution, human beings were aware of their connection to the divine worlds and learned about these worlds through divine revelations. But because death did not exist in these divine worlds, human beings were unable to learn anything about death. Death was not a reality for human beings because they recognized only the steady, constant progression of human souls through various states the gods arranged for them. Later when death gained significance, human beings were able to overcome death by developing the inner strength to hold fast to the Christ. This is a matter of inner development, however, not of esoteric Christianity. What was the content of esoteric Christianity that the Christ conveyed to his initiated disciples? He told them that events on Golgotha reflected supersensible excuse me, he told them that events on Golgotha reflected super earthly events, and a relationship between Araman and the divine worlds responsible for the evolution of Saturn, sun and moon and earth as it was before the mystery of Golgotha. He told them that the cross on Golgotha cannot be seen simply as a manifestation of earthly factors. In fact, it has significance for the entire cosmos. This was the content of esoteric Christianity. The esoteric teachings that the Christ conveyed to his initiated disciples were profoundly moving. To continue the conversation, the disciple might have said, Today we are entangled in death. And we, no longer, and we would no longer know anything about the gods if the Christ had not died and risen from the dead to share with us the gods' experiences with death. As human beings, we faced a time when we would no longer be able to know anything about the gods. But the gods sought a way to speak to us again through the mystery of Golgotha. Perhaps we can get a feeling what is meant by esoteric Christianity by imagining the following scenario. Suppose two disciples of the Christ, who were making progress in their understanding of esoteric Christianity, are talking together as they wrestle with their doubts. One of them might say to the other, The Christ, our teacher, came down to earth from the spiritual worlds that people knew in ancient times. These people knew about the gods but only the gods who could not tell them anything about death. If these gods were the only ones we ever knew, we would never have experienced the essence of death. The gods first had to send a being down to earth so that they could learn about death through one of their own. Since his resurrection, the Christ seems to be teaching us about what the gods had to do to guide earthly evolution toward its appropriate conclusion. He is teaching us something that earlier human beings could not know. We are learning what the gods were doing behind the scenes in cosmic existence in order to further the earth's evolution in the right way. For the benefit of humankind, they introduced Aramans' forces into earthly evolution, but prevented these forces from corrupting human beings. <coughs> the essential point of the esoteric Christianity imparted to the disciples, was that human beings, having distanced themselves from the gods, were now drawing closer to them again. In the early years of Christianity, the disciples were imbued with these unsettling teachings, some of them whom we know only from outer historical accounts, carried with them knowledge that they could have acquired only from the risen Christ himself or from those he had taught. This knowledge was passed on by word of mouth, and the early proponents of Christianity placed great value on having a teacher who was the pupil of the pupil of a disciple who had known the Lord Himself after His resurrection. In the first few centuries of Christianity, people placed great value on personal transmission of the tradition, but it gradually became more and more superficial and was reduced to outer historical accounts. In essence, however, It could be traced back to what I have described here today. The embodiment of intellect began to be especially pronounced in the 4th and 5th centuries after the mystery of Golgotha and underwent a reversal in the 15th century, when the 5th post-Atlantean epoch began. The development of the intellect effectively eliminated the ancient wisdom that had allowed people to recognize supersensible truths and a new wisdom had not yet developed. For a certain period of time, people forgot about the esoteric aspects of Christianity. As I mentioned earlier, some notes about it were preserved by esoteric societies, but in modern times their members no longer understood that these notes refer to teachings conveyed by the risen Christ to certain initiated disciples. If ancient Hebrew teachings had not undergone a regeneration through Christianity, Paul's absolute conviction prior to the event at Damascus would have become universal. Paul's line of thinking went something like this. Our traditional teachings were originally conveyed to human beings spiritually in the form of divine spiritual revelation. Later these teachings were preserved in Scripture. The scribes of the Jewish people knew everything that had been preserved of ancient divine wisdom. These same scribes supplied the rationale for condemning the Christ Jesus to death. People like Saul, before he became Paul, were aware of the original divine wisdom and knew that it flowed down through the ages to the scribes of their own time, outstanding individuals who devoted themselves to the study of Scripture. To people like Saul, therefore, it seemed impossible that divine wisdom could have unjust consequences. An innocent man condemned to death? Impossible. The sequence of events that led to condemning Christ Jesus to death ruled out any possibility of his innocence. Only the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, already instinctively enmeshed in a very different worldview, was able to ask, what is the truth? For Paul, when he was still Saul, it was impossible to imagine that the righteous judgment of the scribes was not based on truth. What was the new conviction that Paul struggled to achieve? He had to be convinced that it was possible for human beings to subvert divine truth into such egregious error that the most innocent of individuals was put to death on the cross. The original wisdom of the gods flows down and becomes the wisdom of the Jewish scribes who lived at the time of the mystery of Golgotha. It was inconceivable for Saul to think that the wisdom of the scribes did not contain the truth, but it was time to think otherwise. Paul, when he was still Saul, would have said, If the Christ who was put to death on the cross is truly the Messiah, this stream of truth must have become mingled with error. The Christ must have been nailed to the cross in error. In other words, the original divine wisdom must have been transformed into error in human beings. Of course, Saul was able to convince himself of this only by experiencing the reality of the resurrection. Outside Damascus, Saul experienced the Christ himself and was convinced. But what did this experience mean to Saul? It meant that ancient divine wisdom no longer existed in its original form, but had absorbed an aramonic element. This is how Paul arrived at the insight that humankind's evolution had been appropriated by a foe who is the source of error on earth. By introducing the intellect to human beings, this foe also introduces the possibility of error, and in the greatest manifestation of this error, an innocent being was nailed to the cross. Paul first had to be convinced that it was possible for an innocent person to be put to death. His experience at Damascus provided an initial view of how Araman entered humankind's evolution and a first inkling of the mystery of Golgotha as a supersensible, super-earthly event in the development of the human I-capital. Esotericism is never exclusively mystical. We are gravely mistaken if we interpret mere mysticism as esotericism. Esotericism is always a recognition of realities that take place in the spiritual world as such, behind the veil of sense-perceptible reality. The balancing of the divine and armonic worlds occurred behind the veil of sense-perception, but was played out in Christ Jesus' death on the cross. Through his experience at Damascus, Paul realized that the error that led to the death on the cross was possible only because the being of humanity had been appropriated by armonic forces. Only when he had understood this was he also able to grasp the truth of esoteric Christianity. In the sense of the word, Paul was certainly an initiate. This initiation, however, gradually succumbed to the influence of intellectuality. Today we need to find our way back to an understanding of esoteric Christianity. We need to know that Christianity encompasses more than exoteric accounts. The Gospels hint at its esoteric aspect, but it is still not talked about much today. Nonetheless, humankind must return to this aspect of Christianity, despite its almost total lack of outer documentation and the spiritual science, can teach us to understand what the Christ himself taught his initiated disciples. He was able to convey these teachings only after experiencing death on earth, as he could not experience it in the divine world, where death was non-existent until the mystery of Golgotha. No being from that world had ever died. In the world of the hierarchies, related to the earth's development through the Saturn, sun and moon stages, The Christ is the firstborn, the first to experience death. Through the mystery of Golgotha, death is subsumed into life. In earlier times, people knew life without death. But through the Christ we learn about death as part of life, as an experience that intensifies life. The life human beings experienced before they knew about death was a weaker form of life. We must now live more intensely if we want to pass through death and still live. In this context, death is also the intellect. Before human beings were afflicted with intellect, a relatively weak sense of life was sufficient. The people of ancient times who received knowledge of the divine worlds through inner revelations did not die in any inner sense. They always remained alive, They were able to laugh at death because they remained inwardly alive. The Greeks still told stories about how happy people were in ancient times because as death approached, they became so numb inside that they did not notice they were dying. These Greek stories were the last remnant of a worldview that knew nothing of death. In more recent times, we experience the intellect and it gives us cold and It makes us cold and dead inside. Our intellect paralyzes us. When we develop the intellect, we are not actually living. We must learn to sense that when we think, we pour our life out into dead rational images. We need to be intensely alive to sense creative life in the cultivation of dead rationality, and to enter the domain where moral impulses derive from the power of pure thinking where we learn to understand human freedom on the basis of impulses of pure thinking. I attempted to depict this experience in my Philosophy of Freedom title, which details a mode of moral perception that is meant to show us how to enliven or resurrect dead thoughts so that they become moral impulses. To this extent inner Christianity is certainly inherent in such a philosophy of spiritual activity. My intention today was to present certain aspects of Christianity from a specific perspective for you to ponder. In our times when there is so much contention about the nature of Christianity on the exoteric historical level, it is essential to point to Christianity's esoteric teachings. I hope you will not take what I said today lightly, but will receive it with all due seriousness. In talking about such things, it is always difficult to force them into modern abstract words. That is why I attempted yesterday to prepare your souls by presenting images of what happens inside the human being in relationship to the cosmos. Today we turned our attention away from the individual human being and toward the esoteric historical evolution of humankind as it absorbed the incisive event of the mystery of Golgotha. When I come back from my trip, perhaps we will have an opportunity to consider the relationship of the human soul to the evolution of the cosmos on a different level. That's the end of Lecture 7.